the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. You may be familiar with the painting. It is an incredible and historic one, perhaps, for people of faith. It depicts two steep cliffs and a gigantic chasm in between. And across the chasm, from one cliff to the other, sits the cross. And, of course, the notion of the cross being the bridge to which mankind might be reconciled unto the Father. The, the imagery is, is quite incredible. And in a very practical fashion, my guest today leads a church that very much lives up to both the ideal and the name. Joining me is the lead pastor of Bridges Community Church in Fremont, Pastor Nate Glaze. Pastor Glaze, great to have you with us today. Thanks. Good to be here. That uh, imagery of that painting of the bridge, and I've got to believe it sits in somebody's office or maybe in the lobby of the church or, or something, but a wonderful depiction of not only the role that Christ plays in bridging that gap between God and mankind, but as well as the role that, quite frankly, the church should play in bridging that gap between knowledge of God and who we are as the church. Yeah, absolutely. I think in so many ways, the name Bridges is, you know, we've been that for, we were originally Fremont Evangelical Free Church. And we, you know, we came across the name and I really believe it was the Holy Spirit leading us to that name about 15 years ago. And it really has has served not just as what we put on the side of the road here, but really our mission that we're all about bridging relationships to pursue the life adventure of following Jesus together. And it really is kind of our heartbeat of, of who we are here. Representative of the Bay Region, certainly. I mean, I think we have more bridges within a short distance than perhaps any other metropolitan area in the country. I think there's seven total bridges that traverse one end of the Bay to the other. And along with that, as you point out, the notion of uh, bridging that gap between people and leading them to Christ, and my goodness, um, in terms of the number of bridges that need to be built, uh, again, probably a, a winner for the San Francisco Bay Area. You just look at the diversity of our region. Uh, yeah. Both from a socioeconomic standpoint, from the standpoint of uh, where people are in their faith or in their religious ex life experience, coming from all parts of the world, all tribes and tongues. I mean, it's it's almost as if the mission field is literally out one front door. It's interesting. We were kind of going through a process a couple of years ago, thinking about our community. We're here in Fremont, which is you know kind of a suburb of the Silicon Valley. And we're a very diverse community. If you go to our local park, you'll see people from just about every background and culture and language and religious expression on earth. And in some ways, it's this beautiful picture of kind of connectedness. And But we also just realize that even though we are all kind of in proximity with each other, there's this huge gulf that divides people. You know, we're divided from each other. We're divided by language. We're divided by socioeconomic standing. We're divided by all these different things. And most importantly, that the vast majority of our neighbors 
are divided from a loving, living God who is calling them to himself and just really felt this deep calling in our, our life and our family life together. Okay, how do we, as a church, how do we bridge those relationships with all of our neighbors, regardless of their background, regardless of where they've come from or their language, to, to share the good news of Jesus so that they can enter into relationship with him? Peel back a little bit of the curtain, if you would, and help us understand how one actually goes about doing that, because there are so many layers of complexity, and and certainly some folks, I think, get scared off. If you don't look like me, talk like me, worship like me, I don't quite know how to handle that. And so we we tend to kind of cloister. I think it was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who opined or observed that America is no more racially divided than it is at 11 o'clock Sunday morning, meaning to suggest that we don't see that kind of blending even in the body of Christ as we ought to, which is a shame because there's going to be a lot of diversity in heaven, whether we like it or not. You know, when the gospel is for all mankind, uh, that kind of intimates that nobody's going to be left out for all that who should come and bow and surrender. And so, with that thought in mind, what is the approach in terms of bridging? relationships with so many different people with such great diversity of language and culture and background? Yeah. So I think our journey as a church is a little bit of a ignorance led by the Holy Spirit, just kind of guided us through the place that we find ourselves now. Uh, Over the past 20 years, our community has changed a lot, like most of the Bay Area. And, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we were predominantly white community. And so we were obviously a predominantly white church, predominantly English speaking. That kind of made sense for who we were in our community. And as our community began to change, God brought leaders, individuals into our church that had a heart to reach their neighbors and had a heart to reach people who spoke the language that they grew up speaking. And so it started, I believe, with a, a deaf fellowship here, Fremont's home for California School of the Deaf. So we have a large deaf community here. And our lead pastor at the time had a deaf daughter. And so kind of together, they started a ministry. They really wanted to see not just a a church that had an interpreter, somebody signing, but really a a deaf church that could reach this community. And a little bit later on, some folks who came from a Cantonese background just had a passion to start a fellowship here for Cantonese speakers. And then a Mandarin fellowship began and Telugu. And so it's just been cool as God has brought people into our community and they've looked at their own kind of communities. Okay, how do we how do we reach out? And then one of the things that I think was really strategic for us early on is uh, we made the decision that we were just going to have one family ministry program, one kids, man, one student ministries. And that's really been this unifying factor for us that that we all go worship in our different language fellowships And yet our kids are all together and we have a really wonderful patio here at Bridges. And so after the service, we're all together. So even though we we might kind of separate out based on language, when it comes down to it, we are truly one church. And um, from that kind of multi, I think it started as a multilingual kind of movement here, but it really has become a multicultural movement here because even, you know, within our English fellowship, we're a majority, non-majority church, you know, the we have folks from all over the world who come and different backgrounds and cultures and just trying to figure out how to follow Jesus here in, in the Silicon Valley and, and honor him with their life. So it's a, it's been a fun journey. And it sounds like the approach has been rather than sort of creating a silo, which is what most churches do, and, and whether or not that's that's done intentionally or just 
organically, we sometimes kind of silo. It's the comfort area, the comfort zone for us. So we stay with what we know. Sadly, though, that also suggests or gives a message out to people from the outside looking in that you're not going to quite be comfortable here because you're not going to feel any sense of home here. And yet I think what you're suggesting, Pastor Glaze, is this notion of bridges really being an an incubator, so to speak, for new thought, new idea, clearly within the framework of guidelines of, of mainstream Christendom. But is it fair to say that there has been an openness to allow people to come forward and say, hey, I have an idea, it might be crazy, but it just might work in terms of being able to get everybody involved in the community and be as dynamic as possible in reaching out to the community so that when folks look in, they don't see a bunch of strangers, but rather they see themselves in a sense. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. And uh, I wish I could take credit for it, but it was leaders before me that have kind of laid the the groundwork for the culture that we have here, but it really is a, there's, there's been a culture here that says, this is not my church. This is God's church. So when people come with ideas, when they come saying, Hey, I want to partner, I want to lead. I want to do this thing that God has put on my heart. There's been a real openness to that saying, yeah, let's explore that. What do you need? How can we serve you with facilities, with resources, even with people? And it's been just the greatest blessing doing ministry in that context, because as God has brought leaders from different cultural backgrounds, I think it's, it's made all of us richer in our, in our faith, because now we're, we're learning from each other. We're discovering these beautiful truths that I think God implanted within cultures that, that people are able to bring to the conversation. And so I think we're reading scripture with fuller perspective and yeah, just really appreciating the glory of our God, who is a God who created all humanity and all of our diversity to glorify him. One of the unique dynamics that I think anybody who spent time um, visiting your church, uh, Bridges Community Church in Fremont, would be uh, taking notice of the idea that it's not just sort of the, um, well, we'll build a building, hang out a sign, and surely they'll show up, but rather to be very engaged in the local community. What's the the old phrase about, you know, don't tell me you love me, show show me you love me. And toward that end, Bridges was one of the first churches in the East Bay to to join up with CityServe and to get involved in a very practical way um, of, of... demonstrating that love so that it's not just, you know, we four and no more inside of our cloistered walls, but rather truly opening the doors, going out into the highways and byways, so to speak, and and to actively do everything that can be done to demonstrate Christ's love to the local community. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, how is that working and is it proving to be an effective outreach tool? Yeah, for sure. I mean, our partnership with CityServe has been awesome. And I think uh, I love the, you know, Fremont. And and, uh, I hope that there's other cities uh, around the country and even in the Bay that experience the kind of unity that we do amongst the churches here. We've got great churches and um, people who love the Lord here in Fremont. And so kind of joining together to say, hey, how do we make an impact on our city? How do we uh, don't just have an address in this city, but truly uh, love our community. Um, I joke sometimes that communities are church's middle name or Bridges Community Church. And so if we, you know, if, if we 
quit caring about our community, if we quit engaging in practical ways, um, we're missing part of the point of why God has placed us here. So whether it's um, kind of local initiatives where we're serving um, the, you know, kind of the wave of Afghan refugees who have been coming through this, this last couple of years, or whether it's caring for our unhoused neighbors, um, all of these different avenues that we've been able to partner with CityServe has just been a, a wonderful opportunity for us as a church. Has that had to be very intentional in terms of getting everybody engaged? And, and I ask that question because, let's face it, we see in our in our general society in the West these days, and, and specifically in America, a lot of lining up between the us's versus the them's, the they people, those people, um, you know, it, it, almost as if we have um, failed to recall our history throughout the entirety of this nation of being a nation of immigrants. And yet, sadly, sometimes we see that sense of almost a fear, and, and that fear leads to isolation. And yet in the Bay Area in particular, I mean, this has been such a magnet for people from all over the planet to come because of work opportunities and Silicon Valley and, and, and certainly attitudes. And I'm just wondering that notion of being able to help sensitize people to the pain of others. How challenging is that? Yeah, I think it's critical and it's challenging. You know, our church, like many churches in the Silicon Valley, the vast majority of us aren't from here. You know, we've all come to the Silicon Valley to, for whatever reason, mostly to, to make our Silicon Valley dreams come true. And so we've left behind, uh, most of us, uh, I've left behind kind of family and community maybe even our, our place of kind of worship. And, and so there's a, we've come to this kind of this culture that's not really our own. And it's easy to kind of insulate in that environment when you're feeling sort of alienated and sort of out of your comfort zone, then the most natural thing would be to find some people who kind of look and act and think like you and just kind of gather together and find some safety at least in your worship space that maybe you don't feel in your job environment or in your school or, or wherever you live, work, and play. And so to, to kind of break out of that, to take intentional risk, to say, no, I believe that the gospel calls me to live um, for the sake of others, not just for the sake of my own comfort and my own security. And that can be really challenging, especially when you're, you're feeling a bit insecure in your place of just kind of existence. Um, but I also think that's where we find the greatest joy is, is coming alongside of this redeeming God who has rescued us and has called us to himself and, and invites us to actually get to play a, a, a role in his redemption story. It's, it's awesome. And that's been, I think it's really a catalyst even for our own internal, uh, spiritual growth is when we're able. We have shared today. Pastor Glaze, with our listeners, sort of the 30,000-foot high view of life within the body of Christ at Bridges Community Church. Now, take us down a few notches, if you would, for folks say, I'm fascinated by this. This seems to be just the kind of church that would be ideal for my family. Uh, Tell us a bit more about what goes on at Bridges Community Church. Yeah, so we're... um uh, you know, we're located kind of in the north side of Fremont. We're definitely a community church. Our, our heart is to see 
you know, our neighbors come to know and follow Jesus. So practically, you know, that, that really is, um, it's about us gathering together. It's about, um, we spend a lot of time just practically, we eat a lot of food together. We, uh, we spend a lot of time doing practical things with each other. Um, we're a little bit of a, you know, we've been around for 50 years, but in some ways coming out of the pandemic, uh, we feel a little bit like a church plant right now. Um, mm. It feels like we're kind of still finding our legs, to be honest. You know, kind of every program we start, even if we've done it for 50 years, it feels like a brand new thing. We're trying to get off the ground and we're finding new leaders. And every week I show up at Bridges and I'm like, I don't feel like I know half of the people here. <laughs> and I'm trying to like introduce myself to people and and kind of connect. So we're a church that's growing. Um, we're a church that's learning and kind of yeah, planting in a, in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, we're, we're a family and, uh, you know, we're not a huge church, so we're still able to kind of get to know most of each other and, uh, do life together. And I think that's a good thing. You know, oftentimes, you know, we, we as an Americans and, and the, and particularly in the West, um, our, our yardstick for success is always numbers, 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 whether you're running a, a business or a football team, how many showed up to the game or in the stands, how many widgets did we sell this month? But there's a lot to be said for a church that is not gargantuan, that allows that iron sharpening iron experience. When the church is so big that you can show up and and head out and nobody has a clue that you were there because it's so big that you're completely unnoticed, I don't know that that's exactly the way the church was designed to function, at least not from the example we have in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, or even the first century church. So um, smaller can be a very good thing in terms of growth and development and that sense of community and belonging too. Uh, with that yeah. said, we mentioned that you uh, meet at 505 Driscoll Road in the city of Fremont. Service times on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. And you can go to their website for more details at BridgesCC, Think Community Church, BridgesCC.org. That's BridgesCC.org. Anything special coming up over the summer months? No, I mean, we, we're, like I said, we're kind of rebuilding as we go. So we've got, uh, we're spending a lot of energy just really trying to make sure that our, our Sunday morning worship is a place that's kind of a spiritual high point in, in our weeks. We've got awesome, uh, we call life groups. It's our, really the lifeblood of kind of community. There are Bible studies that are happening and uh, we've got quite a few, uh, we've got a VBS that's happening this summer and different missions trips, lots of activity happening. Um, but probably the first step for most people would just be coming on a Sunday morning and worshiping with us and just seeing where, where God might be leading them. If, if somebody's looking for a, a local church and if you're there's a, lots of great churches around too, if you're perhaps new to the San Francisco Bay area, looking for a church home, or maybe there's been some changes in your family and uh, now you're looking for a ministry that a little bit better fits more hand in glove, so to speak with the needs of your family, then why not come on and check out Bridges Community Church? Again, they're meeting at 505 Driscoll Road in the city of Fremont. You can call 510-651-2030 for more information. That's 510-651-2030. Or check them out on the web at Bridges CC, think Community Church, bridgescc.org. Our thanks to Nate Glaze, lead pastor with Bridges Community Church. Pastor Nate, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. 
Hey, what's going on, Bridges? How we doing? We are so grateful you're here with us. We are launching into this new series, and I'm really excited about it. It's called Relationship Matters. And let me give you just a bit of a backstory on this series. A couple months ago, we were in a series, and we were talking about, okay, how do we as Christians, how do we live lives that are humble and compassionate and caring? And we're in the middle of this book called Second Timothy, and um, and it was, it was a really good conversation. I think we were all kind of connecting to it. And afterwards, we were out on the patio, and there was a small group of us, and we were standing around, and we were talking. And I remember it was, we were like talking about the message. We're like, yeah, that's really good. I need to apply that in my family and with my friends. And then we started talking about each other's work environment, right? And it became kind of obvious that these like kind of ideas, these kind of attributes of love and humility and compassion, like those feel really good, like in our little family systems. And they kind of make sense with our friends, maybe even in our church groups, like these relationships that we choose, but they're really hard in our workplaces. Like, uh, you know, in the group I was talking with, they, they work in, you know, the valley in really highly competitive kind of brutal environments where it's like a dog-eat-dog world out there and everybody's just sort of fighting and especially right now with all the pink slips that are going out and everybody is just trying to like stay on top and just try to stay in the mix and then now we come here to church and we hear these ideas of okay be a loving person build each other up don't look for your own betterment but look for the betterment of others and you're like yeah right I work at Cisco if I do that at Apple I will get laid off tomorrow Like if I don't demand out of people, if I don't push, if I don't fight, if I don't manipulate, if I don't just make what I want happen, it's not going to happen. And so this isn't realistic to me. Have any of you ever felt that? (laughs) Thank you. We got one honest person. The rest of you guys are liars. Okay. Like this is real life. Like relationships are tough. Life is messy. We don't always get to hang out with people who we like and we think and we act and we believe all the same things. Sometimes we are environments that get difficult. And so the question that we want to answer in this series is, is it possible that this idea of love, this idea that's so important throughout the Bible, is it possible that this concept of love is actually strong enough for all of our relationships. Okay, now we've, we've all kind of, many of us have heard the, the saying, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Have you heard that before? Okay, but I, I want us to also ask this question. Can we also love our mean and demanding boss as ourselves? How about our conniving and manipulative coworker as ourself? What about your kid's teacher that is always giving your kids bad grades no matter how hard they work. You did their homework assignment for them last night and they still got a bad grade on it. Like, how could you love that person? Right? How about that, that fellow soccer parent, that fellow soccer mom that's just always like being mean to your kid? What about that person? Can you love them as yourself? Can you love your classmate as yourself? How about your business rival as yourself? Here's a tough one. How about your mother-in-law as yourself? Don't raise your hand, especially if she's here with you. (laughs) Right? Okay. How about your neighbor? Like, how about your neighbor with all those political bumper stickers on your, his car or her car that you just vehemently disagree with? 
How do you love them as yourself? So we're going to be looking at this passage. It's, it's maybe one of the most commonly talked about sections of the Bible when it comes to love. And it's a beautiful passage. It's found in 1 Corinthians 13. But oftentimes we don't read the words that come right before that. And right before this passage, there's this little saying that the guy who wrote it, Paul writes, he says, I want to show you a more excellent way. So I want to challenge us with this. We're going to spend the next six weeks in this series. Is it possible that in all of our relationships, even our most difficult relationships, even our most divisive, our most challenging, even those people that just rub us the wrong way, is it possible that love could actually be a more excellent way forward in those relationships? Okay. So with that being said, I want us, if you have a Bible, if you want to open your Bible, what passage we're going to read is found in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, you know, there's Bibles in your pews, or you can pull it up on your phone or whatever, and, uh, or it's going to be on the screen. So do me a favor, especially if you've heard this before, try to see it through new eyes. Don't just see it in kind of the stereotype that you might have of this verse, but think about it in those most difficult relationships. All right, it says this. It says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as I can remove mountains, but have not love, I have nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecy, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Powerful, huh? All right, all right, all right. It kind of fits though, right? Because let's be honest, outside of a wedding, right? This is when we talk about this verse all the time, isn't it? Or, or it's like really, I, when I hear this verse, I think of lace, you know, like little roses, my parents in their house, they probably still do. I, no, I don't know if they do, but they had like this poster growing up and it had like these nine boxes with love is patient, love is kind, right? And it had like roses and like doilies and like pretty stuff all kind of wrapped around it. And, and I got to be honest, when I read this, my stereotype, where my mind immediately goes is to like this precious, romantic, soft, kind of fragile type love. And so the question I think that really we should be asking is, is there more to this than just some sort of easy, simple, fragile love? Is this love actually strong enough? Is it actually powerful enough to work 
at Meta? Is it strong enough to work in your place at Fremont Unified School District, wherever you find yourself? And actually, I I think that it is, because I think the context of this was actually never meant to be just some sort of romantic, soft love. Now, don't get me wrong. This makes sense also in our romantic relationships, but it, it was always meant to be so much bigger than that. So this is found in a letter called 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is a book written, it's a letter actually written to the church of Corinth. And just kind of a little background, the church of Corinth, the city is, um, was this major port city, it actually had these two kind of really important ports. It had um, a lot of wealth and luxury and kind of this very open sexual kind of culture. There was a ton of diversity. People came from all over the world to sort of make their Roman dream come true in this spot. There's all this religious plurality and kind of openness and, and very academic very smart, intelligent, creative, entrepreneurial type people have come to Corinth to make their living. Sound familiar? Kind of sounds a little bit like the Silicon Valley, right? And so Paul comes into this town and Paul starts talking about Jesus. And, and it's just this amazing reception and so many people, they hear this message and people are overwhelmed with it and people start getting baptized and lives are being changed. It kind of looked a little bit like last Sunday with our Easter service, like it was exciting and God was working and people all of a sudden for the first time in their lives, they had, they had discovered this hope and this truth that, that was found in Jesus. What could go wrong, right? Perfect. Everything's going to be happy from there on after. No. So now all of a sudden, a couple years later, all these Christians are now like from these diverse different backgrounds with different worldviews, with different understandings of the world. They're trying to figure out how they do church together, how they do life together. And they have all this conflict starts raising up, right? And the book of 1 Corinthians actually is trying to address all the conflict that they're dealing with. So they got leadership stuff going on. Some people are like, oh, I like this pastor better. And oh, he's got really good podcasts though. And he says, your pastor sucks. And this guy's better than him. And oh, have you ever heard this guy? And they're starting to divide over who they're going to follow. There's um, some kind of interesting, some kind of weird sex stuff that's going on because it was such a sexualized culture and it was connected to their religious beliefs and And now people are finding this new freedom in Jesus and they're trying to understand kind of all that. And so some people are choosing like vows of celibacy and other people are actually like justifying sleeping with like their mother-in-law. And it's just kind of this stuff that's going on. So Paul's writing to try to help them walk through some of that stuff. There's issues based on their past cultural religious backgrounds. Like some people are eating meat that was like sacrificed to idols and other people are like, oh, you're disgusting. I can't believe you're doing that. There's all sorts of stuff. Like people are asking like, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And, and what are church services supposed to look like? Can we speak in these kind of foreign languages? And it's, it's a mess, right? It's, it's a huge mess. And Paul writes to address all of these different things. And his answer is this. Love. Think about this. People are showing up to church on Sunday morning. And they're seeing each other across the parking lot. And they're like, oh, I can't believe that person's here. I can't. Oh, I hate that person. Oh, man. They're going to, to lunches afterwards. And people aren't hanging out. They're divided amongst each other. And they're judging each other. And they're talking behind each other's backs. And it's this hot, ugly, broken place. And in that 
Paul describes this incredible love. This love actually that's kind of even hard for us to get our heads around. I think part of the reason that there's a poetic nature to this passage is because sometimes in poetry and art, we can sort of express things that we can't fully put together just with a logical argument. And his answer is the hope of all of our relationships is found in love. In fact, it's actually found in this audacious love. That's kind of a term we're going to use. So instead of saying first Corinthians love or extreme love or agape love or some of these like church words, I just want us to use the word audacious love today. And when we say that, what we're talking about is sort of the summary, kind of the multifaceted description of love that we see here in first Corinthians. And, you know, it's kind of a definition of audacious, right? Is this willingness to take surprisingly bold risks, isn't that kind of an interesting way to think of this love? Like love is patient, love is kind, and doesn't keep records of wrong. And just this, this love that is kind of risky. It actually, I think in, in some ways, this love feels a little bit unsafe, if we're honest with it. Especially when it comes to difficult relationships. I mean, just think about this. When you're talking about your coworker. That's constantly letting you down, right? You're on a team together and they're constantly dropping assignments. They're, they're constantly not living up to, to what they're supposed to do. Isn't it kind of audacious to say love is patient? Doesn't totally make sense in some of those situations. Or how about that boss that's always belittling you, that's always talking down to you, that no matter what you do, it's never enough. And they're always judging you and judging your character, Isn't it kind of audacious to say that love doesn't boast? Isn't that what you want to do when you're feeling degraded and pushed down? Don't you want to boast? Don't you want to talk about your value and your worth and your esteem and kind of pump yourself up a little bit? Isn't it audacious in that moment to say love is not arrogant? Or, I mean, we could just go through any relationship. Whatever relationship you have in your life, I'm sure you got somebody right now that's coming to mind that you're thinking about. It's audacious. It's crazy. It's kind of difficult to even imagine applying these love to those relationships. But I think that kind of the, the statement that actually sounds a little cliche, it sounds a little bit overused, but I think it's really important is this statement that love truly is the answer to all of our relationships. And I'm hoping over the next five weeks, we're going to be able to unpack this. We're going to be able to look at, okay, what would this look like? What does it look like for me to be patient at my job site? What does it look like for me to be kind and loving in, in my social groups, the people I'm hanging out with, with my neighbors, with all of these different places? And to kind of set the foundation, though, for this whole series we're going to be in, I want us to start, though, with this idea that I actually think the love described in this is a little bit hard for me to get my head around. It honestly feels a little bit unrealistic, right? Like if we're honest with ourselves, like it's, it's kind of big. It's bigger than I've, I've ever really experienced. It's talking about this love that is so much greater than anything that I value in life. It's this love that has all these incredible facets and sort of touches on every bit of my character and my personality and my, who I am. It's this love that's eternal. Like it's, it's hard for me to kind of get my head around what that looks like. And so I think there's a couple of reasons that we actually struggle with this audacious kind of love. And the first reason is I think this audacious kind of love is actually unfamiliar and foreign to us. I mean, think about this for a second. Hopefully all of us have experienced some love in our life, 
We've had somebody who's experienced, you know, who's expressed love to us, who's cared for us, who's nurtured us, who's, who's had some sort of, but even in their most beautiful form of love, it does not live up to the love that I just read about in 1 Corinthians 13. Let me illustrate it uh, kind of with a funny story. So I grew up um, in Oregon. Uh, I've talked about that quite a bit here. But I actually, my parents are both Californians. My dad's from San Diego. My mom grew up in kind of Contra Costa. So they moved up to Oregon when they were in their 20s. And they moved up to the Willamette Valley, which is not a very cold place. It rains a ton, but it's actually only about 10 degrees cooler than it is here. So they don't get a lot of snow. And so my parents weren't really like prepared for snowy type weather. So growing up, we didn't have like snow clothes and we just kind of wore normal clothes and we'd get a day or two a year where it would snow. And I remember when I was like 13, our church had this field trip to go up skiing. And I was super excited. This was going to be my first time ever skiing. And it was night skiing. And that seemed even cooler than day skiing for some reason. And I was just really excited. I remember I told my parents, I'm like, hey, I want to go skiing or snowboarding. Actually, I want to go snowboarding. They, they were just, it was unfamiliar to them. They had no idea how to like prepare me to go snowboarding. So I remember we went down to the local like sporting goods shop and they rented me a snowboard. And then we came home and they started looking through the clothes that we had. So they decided that the best way for me to go snowboarding at night um, is I needed pants. So they, I only had blue jeans. So they gave me two pair of blue jeans. That way when the first pair could like get cold and the second pair would keep me warm. And I had a, a flannel shirt that I put on. So I had a nice flannel and then I put on just a normal like city jacket over that. And then we went down to Bimart, which you don't know what that is. And you're fortunate you don't because it is just a, it's the kind of store you can buy like cheese puffs and a shotgun at. That's like the kind of stuff they sell there. Um, and we bought like cheap gloves and I think I had a beanie or something. And they sent me up the mountain on this church bus going up to go night skiing on Mount Hood. Oh, I was so excited. And all my friends, they grew up with like Oregonian parents. So they were familiar with this. They had been to the mountain before. They were, they were experienced mountain folk, right? And so we get there and they take off. They go running up the hill, they go find their lifts. And I'm just sitting there looking. I've never seen this really before. I, you know, I'd only seen like people going down mountains in the videos, right? Never like how to learn how to do it. And I get my stuff on and I get on the lift. I remember coming off the lift and I fell like everybody does. And it was so icy because it's nighttime and the wind was blowing and that snow was hard. I was expecting it to be like fluffy and soft and I just, it hurt. And then like I would get going and I, I actually figured out how to like stand up. I just didn't know how to slow down and that was a problem. So I would just go full speed and then just throw myself into the ice to stop. And I just did that over and over for hour after hour. And pretty soon my pants were like frozen stiff. I could hardly walk. And my flannel um, got frozen like kind of off my back like this. So my whole lower back was exposed. You could see my tattoo back there. No, I don't have a tattoo there. Um, and it was just miserable. Like I hated it. Like, and now I, I still love snowboarding, but I, I had to be familiar with it, right? It was this foreign concept and nobody in my life could really prepare me how to properly do this. Okay. Now, now think about this. We're not talking about snowboarding. We're talking about love. And is it possible that none of us have fully experienced in human relationships, the kind of love that God is calling us to? 
Now, maybe you're feeling like, no, actually, I was raised by super loving parents. They cared about me. There was food on the table. There was hugs. Yeah, I grew up in that family too. But I would be willing to bet that your parents at some point in your life let you down. When you needed them to keep no record of wrong, they kept a record of wrong. When you needed them to be patient, they weren't able to be fully patient, right? Because your parents are broken people. And you're probably, if you're a parent, you're a parent to a kid and they're not getting totally the love they need out of you either, right? Or maybe you're feeling like, yeah, but dude, you should see me and my romantic partner. We got it figured out. We got this love thing. We are, we got a perfect marriage. We got a perfect relationship. And, and even that, I, I would challenge, I, I bet all of our relationships aren't as perfect as we wish they were, huh? That sometimes we don't get the love out of our partner that we really long for. Our, that love is limited. That love is selfish at times. That love is, is arrogant. That love kind of rejoices in wrongdoing sometimes. So then we all come from this environment where we're experiencing sort of this love that is not fully love, this love that is not fully audacious, this love that is kind of a safe, kind of okay, kind of works in my relationships. And that's what we know. And so then we try to replicate that love out in other relationships. And it, it just is okay. It's kind of good. It's better than nothing. It's better than being a complete jerk. But it's not awesome always, huh? And that kind of love, I think, really falls apart when relationships get difficult. I think kind of simple, superficial love works okay when you're happy with the person you're with, when you're both trying your best to express love to each other, when you're both in a good mood, when you both slept a good night and had a good meal and all your needs are being met, then it works. But when those things aren't being met, it gets strained. It gets difficult. So we want to explore in this series, what does it look like to experience the love from God that is truly audacious? To familiarize ourselves with this foreign concept for us. And I think another problem is, is because this concept is so foreign to us, because it's actually something none of us have fully experienced in our human relationships with each other, then we find other value systems to give our life purpose and worth. Right? We, we grab onto other things to say, okay, well, if I'm not feeling fully loved and supported and cared about, how can I do that for myself? And so we think, okay, maybe if I get just, you know, really successful in my workplace, maybe if I can just have kind of the title and all that, or maybe if I'm just a really smart academic person, like I just know stuff. I'm the kind of people that people turn to, to get answers, then maybe that will give my life value or worth. Or maybe if I have the right experiences in life, or okay, we, we find all of these different values. And I think actually that makes it difficult for us to see this kind of audacious love that this passage is talking about. Because our audacious love is oftentimes overshadowed by our misaligned internal values. And that's a little bit what this passage is calling out in the Corinthian church. And in fact, it's the same struggle that we have. It's the same struggle my kids' generation is going to have and their kids' generation is going to have. This is a human struggle that, that we build for ourselves these value systems to try to give our life purpose and meaning. And oftentimes the challenge with those is they don't fully work, right? I mean, they work for a little bit, but they oftentimes fall apart. And especially in our world, like we live in a world that, that basically says in our kind of culture that, okay, 
there's not one value system that works for every person, right? Everybody's got to have their own thing. They got to have what works for them. And so everybody's sort of set to kind of find out what gives their life purpose and meaning. There's no universal thing that gives life meaning for each other. It's kind of the, the worldview we have. But then when people start challenging our values, it gets a little difficult, right? We, we start building up these defense mechanisms. We, we start feeling uncomfortable, And so I think actually this here speaks to that. In the Corinthian church, in the Corinthian culture, I guess I should say, there was some value systems, right? Being um, really well-spoken was a high value. You can kind of picture a bunch of like, you know, Greek aristocrats sitting around with their togas, like just having these like intellectual arguments. That's kind of like the stereotype we have of like this ancient Greek culture. But I think that there's probably some truth in that, right? This kind of being smart and intellectual and having good conversations, um, that was a high value. Uh, This sort of academic, spiritual kind of culture. Again, back in those days, they didn't have like this separation of spiritual and academic or spiritual and knowledge. It was all kind of together. So you'd have these sort of intellectual, mystical kind of people that just had this sort of deep understanding of how the world works, kind of a guru type mindset that people would turn to. Also, even social action and sacrificial living was, had some value in their culture. And, and so what you did for others had value. And none of those are bad. And so when Christian, when people became Christians in the Corinthian culture, they started taking those value systems and they would give them sort of Christian names and Christian ideas. And they would say, this is what gives my life value. This is what gives my life worth. And it's interesting how Paul here in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians kind of takes those and unpacks them in an interesting way. Verse one here, he says, if I speak... In the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. Like if I am so eloquent, if my words are so thoughtful and meaningful, like they're making TED Talks about the stuff I'm saying. Like if I just have all the right words, but I don't have love, I'm just a noisy cymbal. There's a reason that we put a cage around our drummer, right? Because we all love drums. I love the sound of drums. But if you're trying to mix on the live stream and you're trying to listen on the internet, all you will hear was clanging cymbals if we don't like cage them, right? Because it's a loud sound. And that's the point he's making here. He's like, if you have all these nice words, but it doesn't come from a context of love, it just sounds like clanging cymbals together. It overpowers what you're trying to say. He goes on, he says, if I have prophetic powers, if I understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to be able to move mountains or remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Trip on this for a second. If I have all the PhDs, if I have all the understanding, if I am just such a smart, worldly, understood person, and I kind of even have this deep faith that just kind of gets it. But in my life, there's no love. I am nothing. It's kind of harsh, isn't it? Not I have nothing. I, I am nothing. He's getting at our value systems, the things we think are important says, if I give away all I have and if I deliver my body up to be burned and I have not love, I gain nothing. 
if I take on every social action, if I go to every march, if I boycott everything I'm supposed to boycott, if I stand for everything I should stand for, even if I was to take my body and give it up for the purpose and the calling of some other greater purpose, but if I do that without love in my heart, what am I gaining? Let me trip on this for a second. One of our values, one of our cultural values is to be um, giving to other people, right? Is to care about other people. But if we do that just for the sake of that making us feel better, how self-serving can even doing something for somebody else be? Right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a hard line, but there's so often that we can do something and it looks good and it looks loving. Like you might look at my life and you're like, dude, Nate is being so loving. And I'm like, yeah, but I just want to get this Instagram photo here. Look at me with these people. Look at what I, it's ugly. And we see it in other people, but it's sometimes it's difficult to see in our own lives. And it, it speaks to how our value system can get flipped upside down. And, and here's the problem. When we have these values that are without love and we get challenged in those, it is very difficult for us to express this kind of love. So if your highest value is production, getting things done, being successful. And you have somebody in your life that is taking away from that. They are causing you to to slow down, to not be able to do the things you want to do. How on earth could you be patient with that person if your goal is productivity, right? Or if your goal in life is to be esteemed and to be valued and have other people look at you with respect and honor, And you have somebody who is degrading towards you. How could you respond in any other way other than to be braggadocious and pump yourself up to try to counteract what they're throwing at you? Am I right? So that's where this idea of audacious love affects our lives in such powerful ways. Now, here's the hope of this. The hope is not just that this is this foreign concept, this thing that we can't understand, this thing that's beyond us. I think the the hope of this is that God has actually shown us this audacious love. It is that this audacious love is something that has been given to us. The love that is described here in 1 Corinthians is God's love towards us. It is not something that we are ever going to probably perfect in our lifetimes. No matter how hard we work on it, you will never be able to love in all the ways that this has called us to. But God has loved us in this audacious, crazy, over-the-top way. And talk about loving, difficult relationships. You and I are the difficult relationship in this relationship, (laughs) right? You and I are the one that God, our creator, created us perfectly for this beautiful relationship with him to be in perfect unity and peace with him. And we said, nah, I'm cool. I got, I got some other ideas. I think I could do this better than you can. So I'm going to do it my way. And look at our world. Our world is filled with pain. It's filled with suffering. It's filled with mistreatment of other. It's filled with hatred and bigotry. That is the life that we created for ourselves. So God in his love that is patient and kind and does not boast and, and rejoices in truth, God says, I'm going to make a way for you to be restored to relationship with me. Well, you are my enemy. I'm coming for you. And he sent Jesus 
on the cross to die. That's the story we just celebrated for the last six weeks leading up to Easter. That is the story of Easter. It is the audacious love of God given to us. And I think actually the most practical application for this passage is not go out of here and do lots of loving things, although that would be great. But I think before we even start with that, I think the first step of this journey of being people that embrace audacious love is to experience the audacious love of God deep in our souls, to allow this unfamiliar foreign concept to become familiar and real, for it to change our value system so that we begin to value the very things that God values. And I think that comes out of finding space in our busy life to immerse ourselves in the audacious love of God, to experience it. Dude, that's why we read our Bible. It's not just to get more information. It's so that we put ourselves in this amazing story of a glorious God who loves us so that we hear that, so we experience it, so we know the God who created us. That's why we pray so that we can interact with this God who designed us, who has a plan for our life. And if we we remove these space from our life, if we're so busy, we miss it. So I want to read some of this again, but I want to just substitute a word because scripture teaches us that God is love. So hear this and know this to be true. This is how God looks at you. God is patient with you. God is kind. Even when you might not be kind to yourself, even when you might be angry with yourself, God is kind. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude. Yo, some of us got the wrong picture of God, don't we? Some of us think of God as this arrogant, rude person that just sits up there on a white cloud and just is looking down on us. It's not the God that we see in Scripture. God is not self-seeking. In fact, God sought us. God is not irritable or resentful. Or maybe some of you guys remembered this from like an NIV translation that God does not keep record or wrong, of wrong. It says God removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. If you got on an airplane right now at an SFO and you started flying west, how many trips around the world would it take before you automatically started flying east? Right? You'd never, Right? You would continue to fly west. And that's the cool thing. The east is from the west. He takes our sins from us. As far as the east is from the west, they'll never come back in contact with each other because God doesn't keep records of wrong. God does not rejoice in wrongdoings. When he sees you struggle, when he sees you stumble, when he sees you fall, it doesn't make him happy. He's not like, yeah, I got him. That's what I do when my enemies hurt. That's not the God we worship. God rejoices In the truth. This is powerful stuff. This is the story that we hold to. This is what changes our lives. This is what we oftentimes hear called the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Do we have space in our lives to experience this? I want to encourage you this week to read through 1 Corinthians and read through it personally. Read through it thinking about God's love for you. Don't read through it as a to-do list. It'll just stress you out, (laughs) right? Read through it. It's going, oh man, God loves me so much. So first step, I think it's just experiencing that, making space for that. 
But there is also this beautiful place in our life for us to actually practice this kind of love. See, something really cool happens. I think when we practice the love of God, when we practice this kind of audacious love, we actually experience more of God's audacious love for us. And so I think part of what we're trying to do in this series, what we're trying to do over the next five weeks is to intentionally practice all the various aspects, the various facets of love that we see in this 1 Corinthians 13. And I think what's going to be really cool about that is I think when we actually put those into practice in our lives, it's going to give us even deeper appreciation for the way God has made us and the way God loves us. And it's actually going to help us love others even better. It's going to bring even more healing and restoration to those difficult relationships we have. And it'll be this cycle that sort of snowballs in our life. So think about it even in this context. So um, let's just say the idea of God keeps no record of wrong. Okay, we believe that to be true. We're trying to experience that in our life. And then we have a coworker that does something that's just not right. Right? They just, they just treat us wrong. And in that moment, we go, okay, I'm loved by God. I'm going to express my love for my coworker by not keeping a record of wrong. I'm not going to hold this against them. I'm not going to keep bringing it up over and over and over again. Then all of a sudden, as we do that, I think it actually helps us understand how God has treated us. That God doesn't keep record of our wrong. And and as hard as it is for us to let go of that, we realize that that is the experience that God has when he lets go of our sin that we have committed against him. How beautiful and how precious that is. And think about all the different nine attributes of love that we just read to, to experience those in our relationships with each other and to recognize that that's what we've experienced in our own life. I think it's going to be this beautiful effect that's going to impact our most difficult relationships. And I think what we're going to see is we are going to experience the love of God in our own life. And I actually believe that our, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, the people we interact with, are going to experience a piece of that audacious love that God has for us. Let me pray. God, you are a loving God and your love is audacious. It is um, beyond uh, what I can comprehend. So God, I pray in this series, as we, we talk about your love, as we talk about how you've loved us and how you're calling us to love each other, that you teach us a deep kind of love that's not superficial, that's not... Um, self-serving. It's not selfish. Um, Restructure our values. Help us value the things you value. Um, Help us be familiar with the love that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Nate Glaze, lead pastor of Bridges Community Church of Fremont. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.